It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Greetings, salutations, everyone. Welcome back for another program. Our conversation today is with Damir Sinek of the Airhead Barn YouTube video series. We'll talk about that more in a moment. As we usually do here, a few thank yous, hellos to those who've checked in via email and elsewhere recently. First up, what's up, Chaz? He wrote us from Parts Unknown, traveling somewhere on the road in India, where he's currently on a Royal Enfield 350 Bullet, while his R80RT quietly awaits his return home. And I have to say, Chaz, probably a good idea to travel around India on a Royal Enfield, traffic considerations, and of course, parts availability should be real good for you if you need it. Thanks for tuning in and writing. Safe travels, Chaz. Also a tip of the cap to Nick in Colorado. Nick was an early adopter of the podcast and part of our, maybe we could call it promotional staff in his own way. Nick recently started an Instagram page called Airhead Misfits, Now, that may mean all of us here, but in specifics, this page features airhead conversions, custom builds, and riders with a do-it-yourself attitude. So something fun to check out if you're on Instagram, Airhead Misfits. And a reminder to consider joining the BMW MOA to help us reach our goal of adding 200 new members. The MOA is supporting us, so we hope you'll consider supporting them by taking advantage of a free one-year digital membership. Now, I ran the numbers on this, and it turns out free, that means $0. So find the link, 247.bmwmoa.org. That's in all the descriptions of our episodes, wherever you're listening. Use the code AIRHEAD247 to join. And a note, for those of you outside the United States, don't hesitate to join if you're interested and want to help out. The digital membership is available to BMW owners and aficionados across the globe. One final program note, our Tech Talk with William Plam will be back on our next program. We'll be featuring one of those each month, just so you know. Our topic next time will be top-end reseal and refreshing, so we'll look forward to visiting with William next time. Now, our guest this week has been putting up some great Airhead content on his YouTube page, It's called Airhead Barn. Demir Senek is originally from Croatia and picked up his love of the 247 from his father. Demir is now a resident of Colorado. His latest project, a 1977 R75-7, is a wonderful video series that captures nearly every aspect of a complete teardown and rebuild, as well as a postscript with a few additional repairs and modifications after the break in miles. So, off we go this week for a visit with Damir Sinek. 
So the first thing I want to ask you is, uh, I did do a little bit of research, not a whole lot, uh, but it appears you, mm-hmm. were, you were born in Croatia. You now live in Colorado. So what is your hometown in Croatia? And tell me a little bit about it. Oh, absolutely. Well, thanks a lot for doing research. I noticed, you know, that you did some of it. Yeah, so I'm born in split Croatia. It's like capital of Dalmatia. Uh, that city sits on basically Adriatic coast. And I lived there for 30 years before moving to Colorado. Uh, so actually how that happened is uh, I was a PhD student on the last year, and that's like six years in Croatia. And uh, I had a paper at a conference, and uh, there was a scientist from National Institute of Standards and Technology here in Boulder, Colorado, that saw it and then invited me to come as a researcher. And that's how the whole thing started. I came for one year uh, in Colorado. Uh, at the year when they had millennial flood and um, Colorado besides you know that incident basically that they had it was really beautiful state and once when I got back and, and got my degree uh, they invited me back on NIST as a, as a postdoc and then I actually moved uh, with my wife at that time. So lo- how long have you uh, been here in the states then? Uh, since 2015. Oh okay so that's re- a relatively short amount of time, all things considered. Um, tell, yeah. tell me a little bit about uh, Split Croatia. Like you mentioned, it's on the Adriatic Sea. I noticed it was home to some pretty historic sites, important historic sites. Uh, it's right on the ocean. It appears to be a kind of beautiful, idyllic place uh, to live and grow up. Uh, the climate there, I imagine, is, is pretty agreeable. Uh, was it, I'm, I'm going over a lot of things here, but, uh, tell me a little bit about growing up there and was that where you were first, uh, exposed to motorbikes? Yeah. So, uh, Split is actually pretty famous for people riding motorcycles because it's, uh, it's Mediterranean climate, right? So you can ride year long there and city itself, it's gorgeous. It, it was founded like 1700 years ago by Romans where Imperator, uh, Diocletian decided to move away from Rome, and he built a palace there, uh, and then founded basically a city. Uh, so that palace is still there. Many tourists come to see it uh, every year. It's it's very popular now these days uh, because of how Asian city is, and also because of Game of Thrones. Uh, some of the scenes were actually shown there. Uh, also in a in the southern part of Croatia, in Dubrovnik. Uh, that city was also used as a as a to film some of the scenes. So it's it's very rich uh, tourist attraction. Um, I can say that I was really happy to live there. You know, basically 30 years of my life in that city. But job actually brought me here to Colorado um, when I was a student. And in Europe, you get your driver's license at, at the age of 18. So that's when I started. Uh, basically riding a motorcycle, even though like um, seed was planted long time ago, uh, thanks to my father, who was, um, he finished the school as a mechanic, but he never worked as a mechanic, only as a hobby. Uh, He was actually a police officer, and um, a lot of years he spent uh, riding BMW motorcycles, actually. And um, that's how I got interested into motorcycling. And when I got my driver's license, I got some stipend 
from a Croatian government and actually used that stipend uh, to buy uh, my first motorcycle. That was really small Yamaha 125cc, but that thing was was running all over the place. It, it was just incredible little bike. I bet, I bet. So, do you go back? Uh, back? I guess you could call it home to a certain degree. Do you have you been back often, and do you miss it? Oh yeah, uh, Split will always be my home. Uh, we, I would like to go basically every summer, but you know, with family situation, especially now with COVID, it it was not possible. Mm-hmm. So last time, um, my son, uh, wife, and I went back was 2019. Uh, we actually planned to go this year, but plans changed again because uh, we are expecting another baby. So we pushed that back. So hopefully next summer we will be there. Wow. Okay. So you've been in Colorado, and if I recall, you're sort of in the Boulder area. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I'm in very small city, Superior, basically in Boulder County. And then my workplace is in Boulder, so that's where we gravitate. So I was watching one of your uh, YouTube videos on your travel series, uh, the Moto Camping Series. And I think it was the first one, I guess, when you sort of pulled out of your driveway or garage <clears throat> and you sort of casually alluded to the fact that uh, some area on the left side as you were driving out uh, had been des- uh, destroyed by wildfires, uh, the wildfires that were yeah. there recently. So, uh, I you know, you just kind of brushed over, <laughs> brushed over that. But I have to imagine that was sort of a traumatic experience. It was uh, blocks away from you, yeah. apparently. Well, you know, six months later, I can actually, you know, just m- mention it like that. But, you know, trust me that uh, after it happened, since it, it was so close to our house, I needed maybe three months actually to to decide to drive that you know, side of the street. Really? Uh, I would go all the way around. I, I just couldn't pass there because those places, you know, that you can see are flat now, those all used to be houses, beautiful houses over there. And then just two years before, uh, two um, days before, um, you know, New Year, um, fire started maybe like six, seven miles in a cherry vale. But we unfortunately had a very dry season. Mm-hmm. You know, it was end of December without snow in Colorado, which is not very typical. And that day we had almost 100 mile wind. And that was, you know, recipe for disaster. And uh, wind uh, blew that fire over interstate uh, in Louisville and then in Superior, more than 1,000 homes were burned in, you know, in several hours, basically. The worst thing is uh, tomorrow, uh, day after, you know, like uh, at the evening, snow started. It seems it was kind of late for maybe like 12 hours or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I didn't yeah. mean, I didn't mean to say you were dismissive of it. So thank you for uh, clarifying that up. You know, again, I just noticed it in the video and you really didn't mention anything in there. And now I sort of understand why. So. Uh, I'm glad you were able. Yeah, to, I'm glad yeah. you're able to mention that. Yeah, I, that. I understand. Those were one of the toughest hours, you know, basically in my life because you know you start recognizing parts, then you start recognizing streets, and when you start recognizing houses, that means it's really close to yeah. your place. <laughs> yeah, and 
Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. You know, like maybe 30, 40 yards away from us, that's where where wind actually kind of calmed down and they were able to stop it. Wow. Somehow some amber actually flew uh, to my first neighbor's house. You know, my house looks at his house and and that house is completely gone. It's it's burned and it's still there. They were still not able to clear the, you know, the ground. And, And that morning, actually, when I came, uh, I, in a other neighbor, there were still some embers burning, actually, in his backyard. And, and there were some things destroyed in our backyard, you know, embers flying and hitting everything they could on their way. So that mm. was really apocalyptic. That oh. was a bad experience. Well, I'm sure you had plans uh, to get your family out, uh, obviously, uh, if things got bad. Uh, where, had you thought about what you were going to do with the motorcycles, too? Yeah, so that was so unexpected. We were not prepared at all. Like oh. We had a, a lunch with a friend, and then suddenly police was knocking at the door saying, you need to evacuate. So oh, wow. We almost didn't bring anything with us. Uh, luckily, we had friends to, you know, spend the night there while this was, you know, yeah, while the firemen were working, actually, on this. And then it took us uh, additional some days, you know, to come back because electricity was down, gas was down, it was winter, and, and we just couldn't come back. And smell was horrible after that. And there are always good people, you know, willing to help. Uh, one of them, good friend of mine, I, I want to say hi to him every time I have a chance, is Brooke Rims. So he called me immediately asking if I need a place to stay. And at that time, we already had, you know, um, everything sorted out, and we were heading toward Mead. Uh, kind of north uh, east from a fire additional 30 miles and and we were good there but many people reached out asking you know if we need some help and place to stay oh wow so and at that time yeah at that time i actually had like uh, one airhead completely disassembled in a garage mm. uh, my sp that was ready for for this camping trip that we did and my friend's KLR was on a table. I was working on his suspension and then some regular maintenance. So three bikes in a garage were during the fire. Mm, boy. Well, I, I guess I, it stands to reason that you know uh, Brooke. Uh, he's in Colorado as well. Um, did, uh, yep. Obviously, you guys became uh, introduced via motorcycles, uh, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. I yep. was watching at his YouTube channel, and then uh, he has a forum going on here for um, um, local airhead people, and I reach out to him, and then I figure out he lives maybe like 15 minutes away from me, and, and mm. Brooke was a great resource for knowledge, for, you know, great coffee partner, uh, also some of the specialty tools when I needed, he was there for me to help, so... Yeah, I, I really like his friendship. Excellent. Well, we'll we'll dig in into that a little bit later, but let's just sort of close the chapter and say uh, I'm glad to hear you and your family and many of your uh, friends and everybody uh, are okay after the fire. So I'm sure, as you mentioned, yeah, that was thank a you so much. Pretty traumatic experience. Um, all right, so let's get back to the motorcycles. Uh, you mentioned uh, your father. Uh, was a police officer. Uh, would did he introduce you to uh, airheads or to BMWs uh, when when you were younger? Yeah, yep. He was always telling stories about them, but at that time I just could not afford one, so I went with a with a you know cheap bike, the the cheapest actually I could find, and it was brand new bike, so that's what I wanted at that time. Uh, 
airheads, uh, as you probably know, you know, they, they need some some work, you know, when when you buy them, they are really reliable and great bikes, but they need some work. At that time, I couldn't afford it, so I decided to buy something cheap and new, and that's why I went with Yamaha. But somehow in, in my heart, um, I always had those opinions from my father and his experiencing experiences riding, uh, you know, those airheads. According to him, those were really special bikes. Now, was he on uh, a, a police bike uh, in his line of work? Yeah. He, wow, okay. Yeah, yeah, he was on a police bike at that time. I believe they had the R50s and R60s, slash 5, slash 6. That's what they were riding. So would that have been, uh, I mean, when we see a typical European police bike, and this is a broad brush, I don't know what it would have looked like in Croatia, but... Was it, you know, sort of the white and green authority bike with the solo seat and the and the RT fairing? Uh, that was uh, white and green, I believe, mostly uh, German. German, okay. And yeah, then in Yugoslavia, at that time, I believe they had uh, white and black. That's what they had okay. for the for the authority bikes. Yeah, and I imagine at the time uh, when you're. And this was, I guess, in the mid to late 70s? Yeah, exactly. Okay, all right. So, and BMW was a big supplier, probably one of the largest for authority bikes uh, in in that part of the world, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. They, they never actually had anything but BMWs. Even these days, I'm not sure, maybe now in Croatia, they, at least in my hometown, I know they had one Goldwing. And then all others were just RTs, always BMWs. Yeah, interesting. So what was your first airhead then, uh, when you finally realized that that goal or that dream? Yeah, so it was actually here. Yeah, the story goes back uh, to Croatia when I saved some money and wanted to buy a bigger bike. And my girlfriend at that time said, nope, we are getting married. And that money was gone, but she said once when we are out, you know, making money, I'm going to buy a motorcycle. And I say, yeah, yeah, you are just, you know, telling me the story that will never happen. <laughs> but actually, yeah, <laughs> you know how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, when we moved to Colorado, uh, she earned money. So she also has a double E degree uh, working as a researcher at MIST, and, and she earned money, and she said, okay, do you want that bike or not? And I decided to go with BMW F800 GT. Really? Beautifully looking. Oh, yeah, that was amazingly looking bike. Uh, uh, actually, guy from Army brought it from Berlin direct, directly, and the bike was one year old when I bought it, and less than one year old and had less than 1,000 miles. And I got a great price. I got it like 50% off, you know, compared to the new bike. And uh, and I love that bike, but somehow that bike did not work for me. It had some strange vibrations, which you can almost not feel, but they were there. So after maybe like 20, 30 minutes of riding, my right hand would just go numb riding that bike and I lived with it you know for you know all kinds of stretching and squeezing with the right hand you know all tricks I could do you know shaking it to bring it back to life 
which was not safe at all, you know. But no. I like bike so much, and and wife bought it for me. Yeah, that, that I kind of tried to, you know, accommodate that and live with it, but just didn't work. And I held it for you know six years, made many miles with that bike, you know, trying my best. And then I saw in on a Craigslist the guy in Lakewood selling my R80 ST. At that time, I knew something about, you know, other airheads, but I never heard about that one. So I, at first I thought that he made a mistake, you know, with the ad. And I Googled for a bike, and actually it exists. And I went there to check it out. You know, bike was in a mess, you know, leaking everywhere, hard <laughs> starting problems, you know. I mean, typical air, um, abandoned airhead situation. Right. But it was able to, dri- to drive, you know, and I took it for a spin. And even in that shape, I, I told to myself, wow, this is something different. Actually, this is comfortable bike. You know, if I work a bit on it, it might actually be really good. And, and I said, come on, don't tell me you're buying another bike. And I said, I'll sell this one if if, uh, if Airhead is good. And then I spent, you know, I told her it will be a year-long project till I, you know, go over through the whole bike, um, disassemble everything, put everything back together. But two months later, bike was back on the road. You know, oh, that quick? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I was spending like every minute in that garage <laughs> with the bike. Yeah, which she did not appreciate. Uh, yeah, well, we all, everybody listening knows the feeling. Yeah, I, I imagine as soon as you yeah. were, as soon as you were finished with your your work for the day, uh, you probably had a coffee yeah. and and were out in the garage uh, getting right to it. Exactly. I, I mean, I I don't blame her. I would feel the same, you know, because I really spent every minute in that garage, and I brought it back. Uh, but I had actually a problem, and I talked you know, to, to Brooke, to Matt Parkhouse. They they never saw something like that before where, you know, like a head of a stem of a, of a valve, exhaust valve on the left side was completely shaved. And uh, you had those, uh, you know, like half rings that are securing the right. valve, uh, preventing it to come out. Yeah, so, so stem was shaved that much that those would almost come out. And then, you know, looking more into it, it seems that bike was so much out of, valve was so much out of adjustment that rocker arm was hitting it really badly. And it also destroyed rocker arm. So I replaced all that. Uh, I replaced rings, you know, everything that was needed. Uh, Met our house at that time, opened the gearbox for me, uh, changed some of the bearings that needed attention. And, uh, yeah, put it back together. And I also did suspension, reached out to Ted Porter from uh, Beamer Shop, you know, for the rear suspension front. I put um, gold valve, valve emulators. And bike is like new. So compression is amazing on that bike. It starts every time. It's so pleasure to ride it. You know, even after those four days of, you know, um, dirt road, riding, camping, I came back home, I didn't feel a thing. On my GT, I felt cramped, cramped, and Mm -hmm. I spent like one day riding. I would need maybe a week of, you know, to to get back to shape. Wow, interesting. Torturing machine. Since this program launched in March of 2022, we've heard from a number of you telling us 
how much you enjoy it. So first off, thanks for tuning in and thanks for supporting us. To help continue our efforts here, we've partnered with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who coincidentally are also fans and supporters of this program. The MOA is conducting a membership drive over the next several months. Their goal to add 200 new members and to help them do that, we're offering a free one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 listeners. The membership includes discounts at hotels, their monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, and a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. To sign up, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Complete the online form and use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Or go to the description section in this podcast. We've popped a direct link right there. We want to say thank you to the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America and thank you to you for supporting our efforts here with the podcast, where we'll continue to bring you unique history and insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the activation code Airhead247. So I want to ask you, we don't need to go into too much detail on this, but uh, you've got, uh, you mentioned uh, you study your studies in Croatia uh, and your, uh, have the, your PhD studies and your papers brought you, uh, the paper you were writing brought you to Colorado. So what exactly is uh, your uh, education and work in? I understand it's electrical and mechanical engineering. It's only electrical engineers. Oh, okay. It's, uh, mostly, yeah, it's mostly wireless communications. So wireless brought here into the U.S. is do research on 5G. So that's what I was doing uh, back then when I was at Finnish. And then in 2018, I, I joined a company called ANSYS that is a leader in a simulation world, and they have a tool for electromagnetics. And now I'm actually managing a team of RF engineers in a company. Oh, okay. That's my background. It's quite different, you know, with the antennas, wireless communications, propagation studies, all those things. Quite different than my hobby. But I, you know, I needed something away from a job and, and actually airheads were perfect fit for that. Well, I think to some degree, and I mentioned this in the um, uh, questions and topics I sent you before we uh, got on the phone today, was that it's not uncommon to see uh, airhead enthusiasts who have a background in science, engineering, whether it's in your case, uh, electrical engineering or mechanical engineering and in, in uh, some cases with other uh, enthusiasts. What do you, do you think there's a particular appeal uh, with somebody who has an engineering background to the design function form of the airhead uh, over other bikes? Yeah, I actually, you know, re my, since my background is electrical engineer, where I am home is with, of course, electrical components of a bike. So that's, that's something that's kind of easy for me. And then regarding mechanical components is something that I never had, you know, school for it, but I learned it from my father, who, as I said, finished school for, you know, car mechanic, and then was kind of teaching me on our old, uh, car we went through it like multiple times uh, luckily it was Volkswagen you know Golf that 
that was breaking all the time. So I, I learned pretty quickly how to fix that. And But when I talked to my friend who is a mechanical engineer, he's also, um, you know, when, when he sees the airheads and how simple those things are, you know, that's the, that's the main reason why they last that long. You know, that's where that reliability comes from. And that's something that I appreciate as well. Uh, they are easy to work on. You know, at those days, they used a, like a real materials, not like something today, you know, where bearings are really cheap. They don't last long and all other things they are trying to save wherever they can. In those old days, you know, they were actually spending money on, on a real materials and that's why they last so long. So that's something that, that I really appreciate about those bikes. Yeah, and I'm wondering, you know, as you went through the uh, ST for the first time, uh, were there some sort of maybe design elements or components uh, that stood out to you as uh, particularly um, maybe clever or you thought were unique uh, about the bike? Gearbox actually looked quite different than something that I'm used to seeing, you know, at car gearboxes. And and it, it seems, you know, very, very sturdy, uh, smart solution, you know, compared to um, more kind of finicky uh, designs that I saw in some cars. Um, also, you know, when I look at that alternator, you know, mounted directly on a, uh, you know, like a crankshaft, uh, that can introduce, you know, some of the issues, but those things usually don't go wrong. You know, it's, it's really direct there. There is no belt, nothing. And, and they, you know, they tend to last for a very long time. That's something that, that I really appreciated looking at it. Just, you know, how simple that is. Most of the things you can actually disassemble on, on a street and work on it. Right, yeah. Uh, it, basic. Yeah, yeah, with the yeah. simple Some toolkit, yeah. with the toolkit uh, provided yeah. uh, under the seat. So, okay, so yep. so let me get a little bit of a timestamp here then. So you bought the ST um, and have had it how long? How, so how long have you had the ST now? it's like a bit more than two years. Okay. All right. So still relatively new. Now, since you've gone through it, I know you mentioned you took the moto camping trip. Have Has anything uh, popped up uh, maintenance or repair wise uh, out of the ordinary uh, since you finished no. going through it? No, actually, uh, I, I thought at some point that I have an oil leak on a, on a pan. But, you know, just checking regularly oil, <clears throat> I didn't see that it's missing anything. So it probably must be, you know, some of the water or mud or whatever is it. Because I made a, a kind of custom bash plate at the bottom. And that's where I saw some of the, you know, liquid. And I, I thought it might be oil leaking. But at the end, it was not so actually nothing, you know, concerning and nothing that I would change with that bike that would need to be addressed. Well, that's good to know. Good for you. So uh, yeah. we'll, we'll dig into the Airhead barn here a little bit. And I guess the way we'll do that is to say, uh, I guess at some point recently, uh, you purchased another bike, and that was the 75-7. Slash uh, And I that was, and what year is that? Is that a 77 R75-7? slash yep. Okay. Uh, a black one yep. now. Um, I know in the video series, um, 
you know, you've, uh, you've done a great job documenting everything. I really like your style and the way you've put the videos together. Uh, but first off, let's just go back and tell me about, you know, how did you sort of settle on that bike and was the impetus there? Buying that bike was also going to be starting this uh, video series and, and the Airhead Barn. Did those two kind of go hand in hand? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I decided actually, well, when I finished my SP, I felt sorry that I didn't have, you know, some videos of a restoration project. I had only pictures. And then I said, for the next bike, I'm going to record it. And since garage did not look as nearly representative for recording it, first I needed to spend time, you know, working on a garage and making it as a real shop. And then whole idea about the Airhead Barn came uh, because those bikes are usually considered as, you know, barn find, and that's where the idea came from. Um, uh, so I, I decided first to work on on a shop. Uh, as I was working on a shop, I, I in the same time, look at, uh, you know, Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist, something local here. And this 75-7 uh, came up. It looked amazing to me, you know, with that test fairing. Uh, it's one of the best, actually, years for 75. That's the last year that they produced. That's right. Switching over to, yeah, to R80. And in my opinion, it's one of the best airheads ever made because they kind of sorted out or problems that they had before. And it was still, you know, engine produced for the power, you know, without thinking about all um, emission things that they had later. And the uh, guy that was selling it again in a Lakewood, you know, maybe like a couple of miles away from where I bought my ST, was a really nice guy that had uh, in his garage, I believe, like three, four bikes, and he was moving to Arizona. And uh, and we made a good deal on a price, and, and I didn't have any other options. So actually, he rode the bike to my place, and I gave him a ride, you know, drive back to, to his house. And uh, bike stayed there for some time. You know, it, I could I could ride it. It was leaking a bit, but I was still able to do, I believe, maybe like one or 2,000 miles on that bike before I actually put it on a table and, and started disassembling. Yeah. And then as I was riding it, I started appreciating that bike. It was a really, really good machine. Yeah, how is it different um, power delivery-wise and, and handling? I know... You know, the monoshock on the ST uh, is a little bit different. Uh, the the wheel sizes, uh, well, wait a minute. The wheel sizes yep. are actually the same on those two. Uh, scratch yep. scratch they are, that. They are the same. Yeah. Um, but the subframe's a little bit different. The way the seat and the handlebars are on those a little bit different. Can, uh, can you compare and contrast the sort of motor and the uh, how, how those bikes handle a little bit differently? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, honestly, my ST, I think, or ST, I think it's one of the best handling bikes. That bike is so comfortable. It leans so easy in a, you know, in a curve. And that monoshock is amazing, especially when you have a good shock at the back. And, and I just, as I said, I got it from, uh, from a TED. It's a Wilbur's with a separate reservoir. It's really great shock, you know, tuned actually to my weight. And, and that setup works amazing. On the other hand, how uh, 75 came, it's all stock, and all that suspension is like 40, 
you know, 45 years old. So you don't, you cannot expect the same handling, and and it will never be the same because just because ST with its geometry, I think it's better handling bike. On the other hand, response from the engine of the R80, that's low compression uh, engine, that basically same one that uses R80 G slash S, and they can take any gas inside. You know, it doesn't need to be premium. You can run it to the end of the world, and it, it will still chug uh, happily. On the other hand, you know, R75 requires more octanes, and, and it, the response, it's, it's there. You know, it's it's strong engine, even though, like, it, it's 750 compared to 800, but it, I have a feeling it's much faster bike. Uh, on the other hand, 750 is, you know, one where you are lean front, and I was thinking, oh, no, again, you know, F800 GT. Yeah. Uh, cramping problems and everything, you know. I, w- I was actually <clears throat> thinking that I'm going to experience the same, but it was not. You know, I was so much surprised because you are lean front on that bike, but you can still ride it for two hours without cramps. Yeah, now that the uh, uh, R7, the 750, the Slash 7, that's got mm-hmm. an S fairing, and does it also have S bars on it as well? Yep. Okay. Yep. It right. has S bars. Yeah, it does. Uh, but, but I didn't feel cramped. You know, it was still comfortable. You are lean front, but mm-hmm. still comfortable bike to ride. You know, for multiple hours. You know, it's just different position than than ST, but still amazing bike. Wow. So let's back up a little bit. Uh, I was interested. You mentioned that before you sort of started uh, the video series and really digging into the uh, to the slash seven. You wanted to get your garage, get your shop set up. So tell me about that. You know, I, I noticed, you know, in the videos, you've got everything, you know, pretty neatly organized, which I can appreciate. You know, I noticed one th- one thing I noticed was how you set your uh, vice down uh, a little bit lower, uh, which I thought was pretty clever. Uh, you know, I've got a workbench that's, you know, a little bit higher than my waistline, uh, which is about a common height. Uh, but that was one thing yeah. I noticed you, when you set up the vice uh, in your shop. Uh, you set it down a little bit lower, which I thought was a pretty clever idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I actually used the receiver for a you know hitch that people use on on a truck, and that's how I mounted uh, mm-hmm. uh, my vice. And you know the biggest motivation for that is I don't like drilling my my benches. And I just couldn't stand, you know, why being at <laughs> okay. that location and and with the holes. So I, I decided to come up with something different. And then uh, I actually was thinking maybe if I don't need wires, you know, I can put the grinder here or whatever is uh-huh. needed. It, you know, just screw it on. It's it's very simple. At the end, the grinder went on on the other side of a bench. You know, I didn't. I still didn't drill the holes, but WISE was pretty good, you know, uh, solution. Uh, WISE, the height is just perfect, as you said. Uh, it can be a bit higher if it's sitting exactly on on a bench. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, I didn't, you know, need to drill any holes uh, into the bench. Now, did you have to go out uh, in preparation for the video series? Did you have to go out and purchase some more? Uh, some additional tools? Uh, did you have most of that stuff there already? Or was there, you know, some more expense and in, in, in preparation uh, in getting the video series ready to go? 
Yeah, so you know how it goes with tools. I do. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I know that wife was complaining to her <laughs> boss at some point, saying he's just buying tools all the time. And I think he was 70-something. He said, like, look at me. I'm an old guy, but I'm still buying tools. You know, so that's, <laughs> that's how it goes. You, you never get enough of tools. No, no. And, uh, uh, what's yeah. the, and what's the local tool shop uh, near you? I mean, you know, for uh, I'm, in, I'm in Arkansas, and I know for a lot of the country, especially uh, in my area, it's Harbor Freight. Uh, so do you, do you have a good tool store uh, you, that you go to on Saturdays and drop a lot of money? Yeah, somehow, you know, I'm, I'm, I did not have a good luck with some of the Harbor Freight tools. Yeah. Uh, yeah, some of them are fine, you know, and I'm just going to use them. Uh, but some of them were, oh boy, those tools were horrible. You yes. know, I was buying like a Z offset wrenches uh, at Harbor Freight and, you know, like a 30 millimeter wrench when I measured it, it was like, 13.7. Oh, jeez. So, so quality control was <laughs> yeah. really not there. And, and yeah, I, I destroyed one nut with it. And I said, what's going on here? And then, you know, I'm more careful, even though I still buy some tools from them. Uh, what I found, uh, Husky from, uh, you know, Home Depot uh, has pretty good selection. Okay. That are decent, you know, not crazy expensive like Snap-on. But since I'm not professional, they work really nice for me. And then whenever father is coming, he, he brings suitcase full of tools from me. For <laughs> Does me. he so really? Not using them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he will come in a month and then there will be, you know, like almost 20 pounds of tools that he's bringing over. <laughs> that's great. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. I'd love to hear that. All right. Well, yeah. let's, let's, yeah. let's talk about the video series a little bit. So uh, as I mentioned, you know, one of the things I like about uh, how you've done yours and i'm sure in some way uh you were inspired by brooke reams uh, because he's got a great yep. video series as well uh yours is I'm trying to think how i could describe this it, it's sort of as though uh the the way you've got the orientation with the video it's almost like the when you're watching it you're sitting on a workbench uh you know watching you do the uh do the the processes and do the repairs and and things like that, as opposed to a real camera heavy, uh, different shots, close ups and things like that. Which you know those are those are fine as well. Yours is sort of you know we're kind of in the garage doing sort of along the along. I'm having a hard time here. We're going along with the ride on you uh, in so many words. Was that the the style you were aiming for or was it just, you know, practically speaking, a one camera shoot and this is how it's going to go? Yeah. So uh, some of people, you know, when when I was getting prepared, I watched Brooke. I watched other people, you know, like uh, William from Boxer to Wild. And in in a boxer to wall situation is a bit different, you know. They have a dedicated cameraman that that is doing all you know close up shots, and then it you know backs up a bit when it's necessary. Unfortunately, I don't have that option because I'm working all by myself. I don't have a cameraman, and uh, I'm you know doing my best to be able to show you know what's important here. And it's not that I actually plan for it to be like that it's more what it turned out to be so it, for me it's important that uh, whoever is watching it it's 
seeing, you know, the re-election and what's going on there, especially tomorrow if they are going to go through the same, you know, work that they can reuse the material. You know, that's the idea. That's why videos are so long. So it's not for everyone, right? Yeah, Someone right. who can spend like five minutes watching, that's not video for, for that person. And, and I will never have, you know, illusions that, you know, those people are going to watch for it. It's not like filled with music, you know, some of those things. This is more like a, like a guidance or tutorial if you want to do something like this. Yeah, well, that's the idea behind it. Let me jump in and say thank you for not putting music on there. And not because I'm not a fan of music. I was a musician. uh, That that was my profession for a number of years. But, uh, you know, not everybody has the same taste, and it can just be distracting and annoying sometimes uh, when you do that. You know, and, you know, the thing I like about, again, on your style, as you mentioned, uh, is, you know, it's not really edited. Uh, maybe a little bit. I mean, you fast forward through some things, you know, obviously, but yep. you know, we can hear you grunting and groaning and, you know, sort of, you know, struggling with things. Uh, so you get a real feel of what actually the process and procedures like on a particular, uh, job that you're doing. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, you, it, you're right. It's not like the boxer two valve or, you know, uh, and Brooke, uh, when he does his, his are much shorter. Uh, they're not that long, yeah. and he he stops and pauses and puts in part numbers and freezes the frame and things like that. So it's a little bit different style. Um, but I think as somebody, you know, I've used all both videos, uh, Brooks and uh, also Boxer Two Valve when I did an R90S, and then more recently I have a 78 RS that I did, uh, and so both of those have been have been really helpful. Uh, and, you know, I just found yours uh, after I'd finished finished up my RS. So I've really just been watching yours just, you know, kind of for enjoyment and, uh, you know, have it on the background sometimes uh, if I'm just doing something okay. around the shop. Yeah. But again, I, I yeah. really I really like your style, uh, the way you do it. Uh, and they're they're enjoyable to watch without uh, too much, you know, as you say, not a lot of music and, you know, other stuff going on that's yeah. extraneous and and uh, not needed. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m. and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. So uh, I wanted to ask you in particular, 
I mean, we could talk about all sorts of different uh, procedures and details in those procedures. I think one of the more recent videos you did, uh, this bike, uh, this, the Slash 7 has uh, Lester wheels. And so you, yep. you did the uh, wheel bearings on there. And now, of course, you've watched Brooks' uh, video on that, and you probably saw William's video on that. Those are two decidedly different approaches uh, to installing and setting the preload on the wheel bearings. And I think you sort of lean towards uh, William Plam's method of, of by feel. So tell me about, you know, comparing and contrasting those styles. Brooke uh, is a real scientific way, uh, but a little bit time consuming uh, by some regards. Uh, and, you know, you chose, as I said, sort of to go by feel. So compare and contrast those styles and then how eventually how, how do you come upon getting uh, the, the preload and all that stuff uh, correct? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so, uh, you know, just uh, speaking about Brooke and, and, and his videos be before we jump on a topic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so his content is more related to his website. You know, that's where, where true value is. If you are looking at videos, it might help. But actually, I would always recommend going through and reading, you know, because that's where all valuable information is. Don't go it based just on his videos because they are short. You know, it's a, it's a nice thing to be able to find them and get a general idea of what he's doing. But then if you want to do real stuff, always go to his website. That's, that's you know, that's almost like encyclopedia for all things, you know, that he was doing. Yeah, the, uh, I would yeah. always recommend that. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, the blog spot is much more detailed, yeah. uh, part uh, part numbers, uh, and he goes sometimes a little bit more in depth into the uh, procedure and things like that. So, okay, duly noted. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then regarding uh, wheel, uh, I have, of course, watched videos, you know, from, from Boxer to Walls and Brooke. And as he said, Brooke's method is more scientific, uh, you know, still easily doable, uh, not that much uh, more complicated. At the end, you know that your where your result is sitting, you know, being a scientist and researcher, I do appreciate that approach and I do like it. But for, you know, general public that will be working on a bike, um, I think it's kind of, that can be, you know, intimidating for them. And I was thinking maybe just, you know, getting a feeling of, a, and, and that's hard to explain, you know, over the video if they are not in a shop trying, you know, to do it by, uh, you know, by feeling by themselves, that would actually help them the most, you know. So that's why I spend some time trying to explain that it should feel almost like a regular ball bearing. But the biggest challenge with that is because those are lesser wheels, you know. So when uh, Boxer Tuval was working on his, those were, you know, spoke uh, standard wheels that he had there. Yep. Um, or, you know, with R8, it's a, uh, it's a bit different thing, you know, because uh, that year, I believe they, they quit using uh, tapered bearings at all. And uh, Brooke, um, he had a snowflake. Uh, That's right. You know, That's paper, right. Yeah, bearings, and I have Lester's. So I called Brooks saying, he said, oh, I know nothing about Lester reels. Do they have ball <laughs> bearings? I said, I doubt they have ball bearings, but said, those are all different beasts. 
And then, you know, I started working on them. You know, I was surprised not seeing some of the stuff inside. Maybe previous owner did something like, for instance, that central tube was all by itself, you know, no wedding band there at all. Really? Okay. Um, yep. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was quite a surprise for me when I opened it. Uh, first time working on Leicester, so I don't know if that, you know, something common that they were doing or, or there was some, you know, aftermarket work on it. At this point, I don't know that, uh, but now they are set up properly. You know, really helpful, like always, uh, was, uh, you know, like tools from CycleWorks. Uh, those guys have everything that you will need, and, uh, you know, that's what I used, uh, those shims that helped me set the preload correctly. And then what you really want, you know, like is just tiny bit of friction on, on that bearing when you tighten everything, because once when it heats up, it will be even more. And and that's where you are good. So I actually cross-checked that with Brooks' method. I was spot on. But that's just because I, I, I have experience with that, you know, and, and a feeling. Um, not saying that it's easy from the first, but if you want to introduce error, always go on a lighter side than actually making it over tight. Yeah, uh, because, of course, you also have to take into, a, you know, when you're measuring that, that preload, um, that's as... as off the bike, so to speak, I guess essentially what you're measuring is uh, the torque of the axle uh, and the axle nut there. Yep. And, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, you may be out somewhere doing something. Maybe the wheel has to come off. You don't have a torque wrench handy and you, you know, for whatever reason, or you forget to use a torque wrench when you take the wheel off, you may end up going a little bit tighter uh, than you would yep. if you had the torque wrench. So that makes a little bit, that makes sense to just air. So you're saying air on the lighter side if you're going to uh, uh, air one way or the other. Exactly, exactly. You know, and just speaking about those tater berries, those are amazing berries. You know, they can last forever. But the thing is, you need to set the preload correctly. So, you know, the reason why BMW used them is because those bikes are made to be used with the sidecars. And then load is a bit different. You know, it's much, much bigger load than actually what you would have only from a bike. And that's why they were putting them in. Well, at some point they done sidecar, you know, but they still continue using, you know, those kind of bearings uh, until they completely get rid of them. Maybe they had a huge batch. I don't know what was going on with that. And, and then finally switching to, you know, ball bearings that are, you know, perfect fit for this application if you are not going to run a sidecar or something like that. Yeah. Uh, okay, excellent. Well, as I mentioned, we could probably talk about an, <laughs> any number of different mechanical uh, repairs or elements in your videos, but I, that's always something uh, that sometimes gets overlooked a little bit uh, by folks, especially on the twin shock uh, models, uh, is getting those bearings set right. So that's great. So as we're doing this interview now, uh, and I know you're releasing the videos, you know, probably most of the work has been completed on the bike. And by the time this program airs, you will probably have finished the video series. So, uh, you know, I guess the bike is complete now and you're just editing and, and putting the videos out. Uh, is that right? No, actually. Oh, okay. Fine process you know looking at the every time i finish something i i then edit it and and, and put it on youtube okay so at this moment where i stopped is actually with the front wheel i from a component perspective i still have to do 
uh, rear wheel. And then basically all components have been rebuilt successfully. Uh, some of things are already mounted on a bike, but it's not nearly to be finished. You know, I just got my parts from from a painter. You know, they are actually sitting in my room, paint and all fairing. Um, you know, correctly painted with a glazurit paint, and then it's time to set up a meeting with a guy that will do pinstriping, like hand pinstriping on on top of that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's actually still in progress. Okay, all right, good. Well, that's good to know. So I'll just mention then uh, this is uh, June. 2022 uh, that we're talking. And so the videos as they come out on YouTube are happening in real time. You know, this, uh, this chat we're having will probably air sometime over the winter months. Uh, And so it'll be interesting to see where you are there. Uh, Can you, are you prepared to uh, disclose the color of the motorcycle or is that something you're keeping under wraps? No, it will definitely stay the same one. You know, I really like that house black color. Yes. That I came with. It's not the original color of a bike. You know, it was, uh, uh, oh my God, something like orange. Uh, I forgot the exact name of a color. I saw it when I lived the tank and then underneath uh, that color showed up. Uh, that still looks nice. You know, it's metallic color, but I like I was black and I was able to get um, single stage, you know, Lazarus, I was black from Hulk, and then I had a local painter here in Colorado that shooted it, and, you know, I can tell you just looking at that thing looks amazing, you know, it's, it's like a mirror. Wow, so all that's left to do is uh, the pinstripes. Yep, exactly, yeah, mm-hmm. put it back and then pinstripes. Yeah, as far as, far as the paint goes. Okay, excellent. Well, yep. uh, so again, for folks uh, who want to check out, uh, go back probably maybe a little bit um, in history, so to speak, in hindsight, and watch this Airhead Barn uh, is the YouTube channel. And if you also have a website, is that right? I do have a website, but it's under construction. So hopefully this winter, you know, when all YouTube videos are out and, and I'm kind of taking break from restoration, then I plan to start populating things on a website. The website is uh, airheadbarn.com. Uh, but it's still not uh, live as it should be. Yeah, it's just kind of a shell page right now. Yep, exactly. <clears throat> All right. So, uh, have you, uh, in your time in the garage, uh, when you're out there by yourself uh, doing these things, uh, have you started thinking about another project already, or are you still just focused on this? Uh, I'm slowly thinking about new one. Uh, but because baby's coming, I probably won't have that much time. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, even though I said, yeah, go ahead, buy it, you know, it will take you more time, but it's it's good, you know, for all of us and you to spend some time in the garage. That's true. Yeah, yeah she wants, mind. yeah, I imagine she wants to get rid of you for a while too, you know, every now and then. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, that, that is actually a good recipe and really helpful. So I am currently... Um, you know, visiting Craigslist and, and Facebook Marketplace looking for a bike. I would love to have RS, you know, some of those like R100 RS. That, that's a nice bike. Of course, I would like to get uh, R90S and R80G slash S, but, you know, that's going to be really hard to find, especially for a good price. So if if I'm able to find RS, I would be really happy to work on that bike. You're going to stick with the Twin Shock uh, 70s? Yep. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. Yeah. I just purchased um, here. Well, I guess it's been about six, seven months ago and I just finished going through it. It was a 78 uh, RS, the one with the metallic gold and the, and the snowflake wheels. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. And I've just, uh, as I mentioned, just here in the past month or so, just finally finished getting everything how I wanted it, starting to put some miles on it. And here in Arkansas uh, in June, this time of year, it's really hot. So I'm just looking forward. This The RS for me is going to be a great bike, uh, you know, for winter riding. Uh, you can ride almost year round here. You just have to have the right motorcycle to do it. So, uh, and I imagine, oh, yeah. I imagine that it sands the snow. That's probably the same in Colorado. Uh, an RS will be a nice uh, way to extend the riding season a little bit for you, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. You know, honestly, my ST for summer riding is an amazing bike because yeah. it keeps you cold. You know, it's. I mean, I, I can ride at 100 degree weather without any problem. On the other hand, my GT, that was crutch holster. That thing, it had the vent directly pointed at the rider, you know, like an engine vent. And and that was hot as hell riding. Yeah. Oh yeah. So during winter, I could go below, you know, like zero degree on that bike without any problem. But that summer, that was miserable. That was really, really bad. I can I can imagine. All right. Well, let's uh, let's uh, wrap things up a little bit here, uh, Damir. Uh, so. I've got a couple questions here that we ask everybody who's on the program. And the first one is uh, your four uh, favorite airhead models, uh, year, color, and the model specifically uh, from 1970 to 1995. Four of those, uh, we, you know, you, I imagine this uh, is not lost on you, you know, the Mount Rushmore of airheads, the four, the four that you would carve on the big mountain, what would those be? Okay. So number one, definitely R80 G slash S. The first one I believe introduced in 1980 because that, that actually turned the ship. That was, everything was different after that bike. Um, I, you know, reading the stories, everybody thought it was so ugly but it made a huge success. And, you know, all GS is coming after that. The grand-grandfather of GS is where just success stories for them. So that's that's number one. Number one, uh, okay. Num yep, number two is uh, my actually favorite-looking airhead is R90S. I, I really love how that bike looks like. It it is in a in an orange color, you know that one is is amazing, but very hard to find these days and and very expensive. Yeah, they are getting pricey, uh, especially finding you know a nice original paint example. Uh, yeah, yeah, and we had a, a nice uh, episode here recently with Mark Francois, who does uh, some just amazing uh, restorations. Uh, on the R90s, mm -hmm. and you know the one thing we, he and I both uh, agreed on, uh, hands down, was the first thing you can tell on an R90s is either the paint is right or it's wrong, uh, and oh, th yeah. <laughs> that's th that's just the key to that motorcycle right off the bat. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Uh, I saw so many of them, you know, online. Maybe camera is not doing the right thing over there, but but. Color did not seem right, 
you know, so so I, I think that's really hard to match, you know, unless you have someone who knows what he's doing with a, with a painting. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so the 90S, number two? Yeah, number three is uh, actually last two are the bikes that I have. So number three is R75-7. As I said, you know, the last year of uh, over 75, truly amazing bike, in my opinion. You know, when they sorted out everything, you know, they had uh, going on, you know, in the past. So that that's my number three. And uh, I like this. I was black color. And uh, number four is just because it's so rare and it's capable, basically, of doing everything. You know, people think that only GS can do, you know, off-roading, but this R80 ST is, is almost capable as GS. And it's mostly all about riding, you know. So I'm pretty sure if you have someone who is, you know, up to task much better than me, it can take that bike wherever that person wants. Well, ec- about bike. excellent. So you're uh, half the way there getting... Uh... The four, your four favorites. That's good. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. So this next question, it might not really pertain to an airhead in particular, uh, although it may. But you, you might have to maybe think back uh, to your memory as a younger boy in Croatia. Can you tell me of a interesting story when when you had a breakdown or or repair on your motorcycle? Yeah, so in Croatia, I rode, you know, mostly that uh, Yamaha. And since it was new bike, and, and that bike is actually, was actually built for third world countries, you know, and that was going forever. You know, there was no brakes at that bike at all. Uh, the engine is so underpowered that uh, I think it had 10 horsepower. <laughs> you know, it's still motorcycle, wow. not scooter. Yeah. But chain and sprockets would last, you know, like for... 50,000 miles on a bike. Wow. You wouldn't need to change and how underpower was the bike. So besides change and it's air cooled, you know, be, besides regular change of oil and it was like less than one liter of one quart of oil there, you know, there was nothing to work on that bike. Uh, here with airheads, you know, since they were older, uh, it never actually got me on a road, but there was a close call. I believe last year we had air, air tech day uh, here in Colorado, everything was ready. You know, I'm I'm always uh, checking my bikes before you know the trip. And I came to ST looking. There was a puddle of oil underneath the uh, final drive, and I said, "Come on, not now! Tomorrow, <laughs> I, I already arranged everything. You know, with people here going with Brooke on a ride, and 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 you know that thing seeing it." And I looked where it's coming from, you know, is it really, you know, that um, seal on the on the final drive? Mm-hmm. Because that, that, you know, that that will require some serious wrenching. Right. And eventually it was actually the rear brake, you know, lever, uh, that O-ring. Uh, oh. There are actually two O-rings so yeah. on a shaft. Uh, yeah, those were kind of bad. And that was, I think, the only thing that I didn't replace at that time. And of course, it was waiting, you know, around the corner for me. And now, if you want to, you know, order that, my my tech day is tomorrow, and that will never come on a time. So it means I'm stranded. I have another bike at that time. But uh, good thing is that uh, Euromoto Electric Shop is, mm, I mean, not that close. It's in Denver, uh, but it's still maybe like half hour, you know, drive to them. And I was able to get to their place get the O-rings and come back 
fix the bike. So I was ready tomorrow for the tech day. Okay, so next question is going to be uh, one design element uh, in the airhead run. And I imagine this is going to be specific to the era that you've been working on here, mid seventies, early eighties. Uh, but one design element you think BMW kind of got it wrong. And if you could go back in time and change that, what, what would it be? Yeah. So, uh, none of these two bikes actually had a circlip problem and, you know, in a gearbox and that would be you know, the, the biggest problem that I would mention, but since my bike did not have that problem, you know, of course, there are, there are some other uh, things to consider. Um, of course, hardened, uh, you know, seats for the exhaust valve would be nice addition to the bike, uh, even though, you know, it's not blame on BMW at that time because they, I guess they didn't know what's going to happen with the gas and that they will get rid of lead, you know, so, but that would save a lot of bikes on a long run. And one thing that I found, you know, pretty bad regarding design of electrical components is that um, whole charging, you know, thing goes through that uh, bulb that tells you do you have charging or not. So if your bulb goes out and charging system is still working, you will actually lose charging just because of bulb. And bulb is just as indicator there. So what people are doing, you know, putting that um, pretty big resistor in parallel to the bulb. So even if bulb dies, you will still have, you know, like a power on a bike. So I think that could be definitely avoided. It was not the smartest solution, you know, over there. But uh, but it can be, you know, um, bypassed, actually. Yeah. And that's what I'm always doing with my bikes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um yeah, you're the first one, really. Yeah, to... I leave you stranded. Yeah, yeah. I leave you stranded. You know, bulb just goes out. You know, nothing wrong with the bike, and because of stupid, stupid bulb, you are on the street, <laughs> and it's not easy to repair if you don't have it. Yeah, I mean, you're. That's funny. You know, I'm not surprised you mentioned that with your uh, uh, electrical engineering background, but you're the first person to mention that. And yeah, gosh, I mean, if you really think about it, you know. It could come down to uh, a thin wire filament in a you know one and a half watt bulb uh, that that could, yeah. that could leave you stranded. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and you you never want to be stranded because of bad indicator, right? Indicator <laughs> is to show something else goes bad, <laughs> yeah. but not cause problem. Yeah, you know, and you know, gosh, that uh, that brings up an interesting point, you know what spare parts do people carry on their bike and stuff? I think that's something I'm going to start asking. Uh, just, I'd be curious what people carry spare wise, you know, really when it comes down to it, you could just, you know, have a, a trailer with every spare part on it. It's hard to say, you know, what to bring and what not to bring, but a bulb kit, something, uh, that, that fits pretty easily under the seat. I've always carried a small, uh, bulb kit, uh, with a headlight and stuff like that infuses in there. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah, that does make sense. You know, sometimes people go wild. You know, I had one guy commenting uh, on my channel that he's carrying spare tapered bearings. So yeah, thinking, yeah. Really? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's not easy to set up on a screen. No, you know? no, no, no. The news are going to be different. Then. <laughs> yeah. But but bulbs, yeah, I can I can totally see that. Yeah, it's small, it's lightweight, and, you know, anyway. Okay, uh, Demir, well, look, uh, I really enjoyed visiting with you today. Again, uh, the YouTube channel is called Airhead Barn. 
you've done a wonderful job with the series. Really appreciate you taking the time uh, to do that uh, and encourage people to go watch that. And in the future, the Airhead Barn website will be up. Let's get you out of here with this question. Another one we've asked everybody. We get a wide variety of responses, but here over the past, mm, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 uh, interviews we've done, I've started to see a few common responses. What is the oil that Demir Senek runs in his airheads? Yeah, so that that's a common question, right? Yeah, oh yeah. Everybody has different opinion, and yeah, that there's a war. Uh, okay, so this is my reasoning. Oil is so cheap that why to, you know, try to save money on oil? There, there is no point because it's so cheap. Uh, I, in the past, liked using liquid moly a lot. Um, and uh, recently, I introduced also Spectra to my airhead. And it seems that uh, my bikes are very happy with Spectra oil. And that's what I'm mostly running these days. Excellent. Excellent. Well, again, keep up the good work. And I know by the time, maybe by the time this airs, you'll have another addition uh, to the growing family. And so we'll enjoy catching up with you, uh, your mechanical and, and travel adventures on, on Airhead Barn. Thanks for the time today. Thank you so much, Darren. It was really a pleasure speaking with you. Looking forward to do it again once more. Have a nice day and ride safe. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Great visit with Damir this week. If you've not seen his R75 7, be sure to check out his YouTube channel. Again, that's called Airhead Barn. That's all for now. See you next time. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Yeah.